I'm John McCluskey. I'm the president and chief executive officer of Alamo's Gold. It's a company I founded in 2003. I founded it off the back of a, an option to purchase a, a project in Mexico called Mulatos. Uh, this was a mine that uh, within the two years following uh, having acquired it, uh, I was able to get it fully permitted and into production. Um, it has um, gone on over the last 18 years to produce over two and a half million ounces of gold, We've generated about $500 million in profit. And um, that was our foundation asset. We've subsequently acquired um, additional assets in Canada. Uh, those are two producing mines, uh, Young Davidson and uh, Island Gold. Collectively, um, the three operations produce over 500,000 ounces of gold a year. Um, through expansions and, um, and other development assets we have in our portfolio, we intend to take production to 800,000 ounces a year by 2028. Um, it's been a tremendous growth company, but it's also been a company that's been very profitable along the way. We've done it. Um, we've done that by keeping a very strong balance sheet. We're effectively debt-free. We have 200 million cash. We're paying for all our growth and expansion out of our cash flow. So um, conservatively run, but um, but very much uh, focused on growth and uh, and managing risk. John, welcome to London. Thanks for joining us. Thank, Thank you. you. And what are you over here to do? Well, we have um, some very large investors that are based here, and uh, we like to come and and see them from time to time. Um, you know, there's a there's a responsibility uh, when you're running a mining company to um, to make sure you're getting a, a decent valuation in the market, and it's a, a highly competitive environment, and um, we have a great story to tell, and that's what we're doing. We're here. Good, 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 good. Now, I was listening to your story about you know the, the humble beginnings of this 20-year overnight success of yours is it takes a lot to kind of stay stay on the straight and narrow, you know, to actually build build a mining company. Because mining, I always say mining's tough. You know, things go wrong. It's difficult out there. So for you, what, did, what were you doing before you formed this in 2003? Where does the experience come from? Yeah, I started in the, the mining sector in the early 1980s. I went to work for a, a little junior called Glamis, and it would have had a market capitalization well under 10 million when I started. And over the years that followed, um, it ultimately grew into a $7 billion company. And then it um, it merged with uh, Gold Corp. And then Gold Corp was subsequently taken over by Newmont. So it's part of, it's all part of Newmont now. But the um, experience, I spent my first six years in the industry working at Glamis and watching that company grow from virtually a standing start to becoming a, a mid mid tier producer, that was a that was a very interesting experience. I yeah. learned quite a lot along the way. Subsequent to um, Glamis, I went out on my own and um, I started to do more entrepreneurial things. I was quite successful, and then the founder of Glamis, uh, who by this time was a good friend of mine, he came to me and he said, "Let's do something together. Let's start a, a project together." And we started Alamos. It's interesting. So I was listening to the CEO of uh, NVIDIA the other day, and he was talking about his journey, you know, multi-billion dollar company, but like yourself. Um, and he's saying, I think he was asked, would you do this again? And he said, hell no. Being an entrepreneur is harder than it, than it looks, and there's a lot of bumps along the road. I mean, when you look back, how, how do you view it? Um, 
I think of it uh, almost like um, a salvation for me. Um, right. I I needed to take on a, a pretty significant challenge at that point in time, and um, I was um, I was really motivated to do so. I was looking for the right opportunity, and um, I feel I was very lucky to come across Mulatos when I did. Mm-hmm. And I was able to secure an option to um, to purchase it, and um, you know we caught the very bottom of the cycle when I entered into that option agreement. It was November of two thousand one. The gold price was two hundred and sixty four dollars an ounce. That day I signed the deal, and I agreed to pay Placer Dome ten million dollars plus a royalty if we're ever ever able to get it into production, and. Uh, we um, we were able to pay off the cash portion of that royalty in 2003, and um, and between uh, 2005 and 2019, we produced two million ounces of gold, and that's where the royalty was capped. So we paid out the royalty, and we're still going strong. Um, Mulatos was oh, I don't know what how to say it. it was the unicorn. You know, it was uh, very very rare project to find um you know most oxide heap leach projects they tend to be quite limited you know for example at that same moment in time the Elsasol project went into production but by 2013 it was done you know here we are in 2023 and Malaudus is still growing strong it's going to produce over 100 million in in free cash flow this year and um and we can still look ahead a decade or more and and there's much more production to come so to have had an opportunity to acquire that asset at that moment in time was um, was serendipity in the, the first order. Yeah. So I I don't look back and say, oh my God, I, I'd never do that again. It was too hard. I, it was extremely challenging to do it, but um, I I look back at it as an incredible break, and 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 I do it again every time. Kid. I mean, given the state of the market back then, I, mean, I guess true contrarian investing you know, by the bottom, right? If you look back, would, could you do it again? Were those different times? Because I'm looking right now, I used to put out your ESG report, for instance, recently, you know, and I think it's, it's, sort of, it's kind of fascinating, the kind of pressures on money companies seem to be greater than they, they once were. Or, or was that not necessarily true? I, I don't agree with that. Um, it, it, the ch- there's always challenges. They're, they'll take different forms, right? But there's always going to be challenges. Mexico, this was a very new jurisdiction. Investors weren't that familiar with it. Uh, they'd only changed the laws to invite um, foreign investment into Mexico in something like 93. So by 2003, this was like 10 years. And most of that time was a terrible bear market. You know, virtually 2006, uh, pardon me, 1996 through 2006, that was pretty much a bear market in this space. So not a great deal had happened in Mexico by the time we came along and wanted to develop Mulatos. So it wasn't something that um, investors took a shine to right away. Um, on top of that, with, with gold price under $300 an ounce, can you imagine what it was like to try to raise capital for a gold mining project in that kind of market? Um, yeah, there was a huge amount of skepticism around the space. Um, one of those environments where, you know, in, in the general press, they were publishing that, you know, gold was long gone, it would never come back. 
think of it here. Around the time we were entering into this, into this option to purchase agreement, this was when Barrick was putting on those hedges um, that were effectively protecting them if, if gold was to go down below $200 an ounce. Um, eventually, gold, when gold prices recovered and, and soared up over, over $1,000 an ounce, and Barrick's hedge book went off, offside by 10 or $12 yeah. billion, dollars, and, uh, and several other companies were caught in that, uh, in that switch. But yeah, we took a contrarian view on, on gold and um, we took a contrarian view on the market and, the, and, and, and we saw that, that bottom as an opportunity. Right. And talk to me about Mexico today, because again, we've, we have a lot of Canadian companies with assets in Mexico, and predominantly silver, who just are, are struggling at the moment and they, they would like to lay the blame firmly at the Mexican government's door. Is that necessarily so? Was that, is that an explorer producer difference? I mean, how do, you, how do you view that? Well, like every country, you know, Mexico goes through, it goes through cycles. So, um, it, you know, where the, the sentiment can turn very positive for the sector as it did in, um, in the late 90s and early 2000s. I mean, the, the Mexican government was sending delegations up to Canada and to the PDAC convention, but, but other mining conventions as well. And they were strongly encouraging Canadian companies to come down and explore and to develop in Mexico. And um, we were part of that first wave. You know, we were one of the first half dozen juniors, let's say, that, that were into Mexico and, and, and spending money and trying to, trying to get business done. And those first, um, the first 10 years we were there, we actually started, you know, kicking around looking at exploration opportunities in uh, 1994, 95. That's when we're looking at our first exploration assets. We went public in 96, but after the market went into a big, big downturn, um, there wasn't much we could, much we could do. You know, we basically kept Alamos in a, in a filing cabinet and we were waiting, waiting for the market to turn around. Well, that was 97, 98, 99, 2000, finally 2001, after five years of this very serious bear market, we saw the market was going to turn. And then we wanted to get in on something and that's when we entered into the option to purchase Mulattoes. Well, that was a good guess, but it was a guess. And the market literally started to turn within 16 months. Market gold prices started to go back up again and uh, we caught that wave. Where are we now? Um, you know, there's very negative sentiment in the market. Um, despite the fact that gold is well over $1,900 an ounce, there's relatively negative sentiment among investors. I think the combination of that negative sentiment plus a, a much more socialistic government uh, in power in Mexico right now, that's combined to make it very difficult for the junior end of the sector in Mexico. Right. Yeah, we'll, 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 we'll come on to gold price and, and, and margin later on. So if you, again, I just want to stick with you because I want to get to know the man. If I'm going to kind of get into a company, I want to understand that What's going on up there? What's the thinking? You know, and you know, and and uh, you mentioned growth twice in your introductions, and, and I definitely want to talk about growth for you know seven billion dollar company. But the entrepreneurial bit of you, we said, I need to do something. I need to do something significant. Most entrepreneurs get bored after a while. Twenty years in, what's kind of kept you sustained in terms of the interest levels? I have not run the same company for five consecutive years. Right. 
every five years, the company is completely transformed. So if you can imagine, um, it was, it was an exploration company of which I was a director, but I wasn't involved in the management at all. That would, that would be from 96 to 2001. Cool. In 2001, sort of operating as a director, not a, not an employee, not collecting a salary or anything else. Right. Uh, I went after the asset and managed to secure it. And by the time I had it and, uh, was able to raise the money to, um, exercise the option. At that point in time, I decided to become CEO of the company. At that point, I'd got it off the ground from under a million. It was now 15 million market cap, but it was still only 15 million. Oops. And there were several steps to be taken in order to, to move that ahead. But within the first year of having taken over as a CEO, I'd moved it off of sort of that $15 million bottom. I'd moved it up to about 60 million. Mm -hmm. And um, <laughs> how? What, what was the shift? Um, well, there was a people, first of all, just securing the asset. I mean, the, the, it looked like, um, an option that we wouldn't necessarily, uh, be able to exercise at yeah. one point in time. Yeah. And, um, there was also, there was also two companies involved. There was a company called National Gold and ourselves, and we each had a piece of it uh -huh. and we had to merge those two companies together. And I was successful in doing that. And, um, once that was done and, and the gold price had improved, uh, we started to, um, do the, the groundwork. We started to do the exploration, the permitting, all the work that would be required in order to move the project forward to get it into production. I mean, if you think about it, we exercised the option in February of 2003, we were pouring our first bar in July of 2005. That means we went from no permits, uh, no water rights, no agreement with the local community, which they call the Ejido in Mexico. Um, we, we, we were basically at a standing start in February of 2003. But what did you walk into? Why? Okay, so today we're talking about 10, 15 years, right, the process. So what did you walk into? What did you buy? What were the, what was the options? So Placer Dome had defined roughly... Oh, I'd say 2.2 million ounces, right. um, of which you could hang about 1.2 million ounces on a 43101 uh, sort of Canadian uh, definition of what would constitute a reserve. Um, but there was 2 million ounces that you could see. There was another 2 million ounces beyond that, that, you know, they'd done enough work to make that look very promising. And, um, you know, as it's turned out, it it all converted and, and more we've, we've gone, you know, beyond that 4 million, we're closer to 5 million ounces now. But the fact is that, um, we started to gain some traction in the market by virtue of the fact that the gold price was rising. We were securing permits. We were securing financing. You know, we were moving the project forward very, very aggressively. And people wanted to, to tag onto a story like that in a rising gold price environment. If I look at the comparisons to today, obviously, some some of these 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 people are in your your position back then. It's a it's a it's the difference being the gold price is, is really really quite good. So it should be a high incentive, but so so are costs. So in terms of margins, are not necessarily much different from when they maybe where they were three years ago on average. And then you're going to tell a different story. Um, so it, it, it's different from that sense. But there's also a lot of very undervalued companies in a tough market in terms of access to capital, a tough market from getting any kind of interest or attraction from 
investors more broadly. What would you say to those CEOs of those companies? Are, are there things that they could do today that you did back then? I would say access to capital is much more difficult to come by. I mean, right. the, the, the retail sector that was still um, not quite as robust as it was in, in the 80s or even the early 90s, and there was still some remnants of a, of a retail component to the market. At the time, I was um, getting the early financing for for Mulattoes. Um The big difference in sentiment was at um, when the gold price was $400 an ounce, there was strong anticipation that gold was going higher. Cool. Pretty strong conviction in the market at that point in time. But when we did the feasibility study on Mulattoes, we were running that at 375 gold. Yeah. So if the gold price assumption was $375 and the actual market price was 400 bucks, there wasn't much of a margin in that. Um, you know, it, 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 it should have been a relatively tough decision for an investor yeah. uh, to, to back a project like that. You practically had to be gambling on, um, on a rising gold price. And I, I was myself and I suspect most of the investors that, uh, that back that project had the very same thought in mind. Right now, you don't need to be speculating on a rising gold price. I mean, we're investing at the moment, we're investing $750 million in the expansion of Island Gold. By the time we're finished that expansion, we'll be able to produce 300,000 ounces of gold a year at Island Gold at roughly $600 all in sustaining costs. At a $1,900 gold price assumption, that's an amazing margin. You know, I mean, investors can look at that opportunity and just think, wow, there's, there's very, very little risk in, in that company not being able to deliver on that. You're the top end of that scale in terms of your the cost price there, aren't you? That's probably, that, that's about the best in the, in, yeah. in the sector right now. So you're, you're taking all the, you have all of the advantage of a high gold price in terms of being able to kind of create um, free cash flow and then decide where you allocate that capital. It's always about best return on capital invested. That's what you've got to be thinking all the time, whether that be, you know, buying, buying stock back or, you know, um, organic growth or, you know, expanding uh, capacity. H how are you, because I, so I was focused, I did want to focus on you initially. I think we'll, we'll, we'll come away from that and into um, the assets proper now. How do you view the kind of growth profile of the company? Where does it come from? Because growth is one thing, making money, the, 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 the margin, the free cash flow is another. And then what it means to shareholders as well. How do I benefit from it for being a shareholder? Well, we're always focusing on, on margin. Um, you know, we, we understand we're, we're running a business. Yeah. And the object of the, the game is to make a profit, make money for investors. And we've consistently done that. Yeah. Um, you know, if you looked at the return on invested capital from the earliest days of the company, it's basically averaged roughly 14% annually for 20 years. Okay. Which is, that's a pretty extraordinary yeah. statistic. And it's one that's quite easily uh, verified. But that's what happens when you take a company from a million dollars to, you know, seven billion. Um, 
what we have been very astute at doing is, um, first of all, not making stupid mistakes. You know, if, if you know of a, a project out there that um, somebody acquired and tried to put into production and destroyed all kinds of value in doing so, I can almost guarantee you I was shown that project at some point and, and turned it down. Right. Um, and so for every project that we ultimately acquired, we probably looked at 20 that we didn't acquire. So you have to be able to sort out the, the, the good opportunity um, from the, you know, the 19 other things that are put in front of you that are ultimately going to... But you've, you've got your own profile, your right? You've got your own profile that, that works for you because you want something that will deliver scale. Some people will go, well, it's good enough. You know, so it'll work for some, maybe not for others because they're maybe not, their standards aren't as high in terms of what their expectations are around margin, around profitability, about, you know, quite frankly, sometimes long-term success. So it interests me because you, you think your your expertise is, is around restarts because of what I haven't done in Mexico, or do you have a different profile that you look for? Well, there's, I think there's two things that single us out. Um, one thing is we're, we're very, very patient. Mm-hmm. So we never feel like, um, oh, geez, we got to do a deal this month or this year. Right. Even, right. You know? We're, we're waiting, waiting for the right moments within the market, uh, to do the best deal. Right. And we watch things very, very closely and uh, to determine, you know, when it's time to move. Good. Um, so for example, when the gold price was, um, sub $300 an ounce, we were aggressively looking for opportunities. We zeroed in on Mulattoes and we acquired it. Um, we didn't do another acquisition of any consequence. You know, we've gone into some expiration place, but we never did an acquisition of any consequence until 2015 when we merged with Orico to, um, to, you know, form the next, the next leg of our growth that brought in the Young Davidson project. Young Davidson, after the capital we put in, it now generates over a hundred million a year in free cash flow. But when we were looking at Young Davidson, nobody brought that to us. That's something that, that we decided we wanted. Well, I would say at least twice a month during those years, the bankers were bringing in opportunities for us to look at. Yeah. And they were clearly things that, that one should avoid. And we, and we did. So we zeroed in on the one that we wanted and, and that turned out to be successful. A couple of years after that, um, again, gold price was about $1,285 an ounce. We acquired Island Gold. Nobody was covering Island Gold. Yeah. Nobody really understood Island Gold, but we did. We, we, took, it, we t- took an interest in it. We looked at it very, very carefully. We saw there was tremendous potential there that we saw something that the market yeah. wasn't even but looking what, what for. Is that? What is that thing that you think? Because I remember so another... Weren't name names, but another group who've got the capital, he, as I say, I said, I've, I've trawled my way through this year 35 DFSs, definitive feasibility studies, bankable feasibility studies. Five of them will ever be a mine. Right? So and he said, he was kind of, so say, it, the, the standards by which these reports put together, he said, you know, it's, it's kind of appalling in a way, but if you don't know what you're doing, like, you know, if you send me oh, well, a banker, I wouldn't have known either, but. How do you view feasibility study is not a panacea for yeah. uh, you know minimizing your risk? Yeah, it's 
it's a vision of, of, of what a, a project could be. It's an estimate of what the capital yeah. is probably going to turn out to be, but it hasn't essentially uh, dealt with every possible risk yeah. that you're going to face. But and, it's sold and, to me like that as an investor. I'm like, they've done the DFS. It shouldn't be. Risk-free. No. Definitely uh, any, not. Any, anybody who comes to you with a, a so-called risk-free <laughs> opportunity. Run. Exactly. <laughs> you know, the, the, and, and I, I, would, I would say that um, at the very best, when we go to take something on, where we see a great opportunity, we, we see all the risks, right? But we decide that these are very manageable risks, right? And um, and we typically have a, a base case scenario that already looks pretty good, yeah. And um, then we have our more optimistic scenario, which you know, if, if we're right about that, then it's a home run. And I and I would characterize you know all three of the of, of the mines we produce from right now. Those were all home runs, you know. We for for ten million dollars in a royalty, we picked up mulattoes. We've made five hundred million dollars in in profit of, of, from from that mine, and 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 it's still going. Um, you know these. If you take take a look at when we acquired Island Gold, and the market didn't understand that acquisition, we paid six hundred million, just over six hundred million U.S. to acquire it. And um, over the course of the next year, our share price dropped by roughly 40%. So not only did we not get any value for adding it to our portfolio, our absolute valuation declined by more than the, the cost of the acquisition. And that wasn't just a case of it's just cost you a bunch of money. It's the fact that the market was devaluing. The market thought we had taken on a liability. Right. It, they thought it made the company worth less. Well... By 2023, the consensus valuation that that street has yeah. on that asset is now $2.1 billion. And we've taken it from, um, from where we, we were roughly a million and a half ounces in all categories when we acquired it. It's over 5 million ounces now, and it continues to grow. The grade has improved from, it was around 9 grams when we acquired it. It's, it's around 11 grams now. The lowest block that we've defined in our exploration work, it's about 2 million ounces grading 17 grams. In other words, one of the assumptions we were making is that as, as this deposit would go to depth, the grade would improve. Mm -hmm. Well, now we've absolutely defined that. Uh, right. and, and, and we've shown we've shown the market what, what this is and what it is as a world-class asset. Well, I think we were very fortunate in, um, in spotting that opportunity but um, to say that there wasn't some risk, and, um, th th that would be, if we, if we didn't say we, we didn't recognize the risks, I, I wouldn't be telling you the full story. There was risk involved, but relatively speaking, um, the opportunity was there to be seen. You know, the, the, the fact that that, that ore body had been growing in in step by step fashion in in the three years prior to our, our acquiring it, it just happened to be in a market where no one was really paying attention. Mm. So this this management team, Richmond Mines, they they were the ones that actually twinged on to the opportunity. They saw the grade getting better. They did the drilling that that started to demonstrate that. They're effectively the ones who who should take full credit for that discovery. And um, and I give it. I'm giving it to them right now. I'm not saying 
you know, we walked in there and, and invented the wheel or anything. All we did was, um, you know, we turned the wheel into a, a nice little wagon and now we're rolling down the road on it. And, uh, you know, we, we, we feel very, very, um, what's it, grateful for, yeah. for, for the work that they did and the fact that we, we were able to capitalize on it. But we knew we were in a position to do that. We put ourselves in a position to do that. It's interesting. Again, it interests me all of this because I guess you get to press the, and it's a very rare thing, you get to press the I told you so button on, on that. But there's a lot of hard work to prove that you were right between then and, and, and now. And I'm just wondering, and so when I say listen to you, there's, it feels like there's a little bit of, well, there's a whole bunch of data and science and systematic approach to increasing efficiencies and you know driving those costs down, in, increasing those ounces produced, backfilling uh, reserve and, and, and resource numbers. But there's a little bit of that entrepreneur still in there, taking those calculated chances on things that perhaps people, well, may not do. Uh, is, is that right? Do you feel that about yourself? It is. We're, we're very much, uh, you know, this company was was started in um, in, in the, the spirit of entrepreneurship. I mean, I, I didn't I didn't come out of a, a major mining company, for example. I, I started in the mi mining industry in a, in a little junior. You know, Glamis was eight million dollar company when I joined it. It was a an office full of old stock promoters, you know, yeah. Chester Miller and Jim Billingsley, these these, these old guys had um, had been involved in some of the the really great discoveries that had happened in uh, in Canada in the in the nineteen seventies. They they were already quite wealthy by the early eighties and they decided they 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 twigged onto something new. And the new thing was open pit heat bleaching. This was in the very pioneer phases of open pit heat bleaching. And Chester Miller said, this, there's something to this technology. I can really make something of this. I can take very little capital and I can, I can make a gold mine. Yeah. And he twigged onto this. He got involved in a project in Southern California called the Picacho Mine. That's about the time I came along. Yeah. The first year that I joined the company, he produced 7,000 ounces of gold but he'd proven the concept. And that company went on to generate phenomenal profits. But, you know, there, there's entrepreneurship. You know, you see a technology, you see how you can actually turn, you know, what would be otherwise a marginal yeah. or loss-making uh, mineral deposit. And, and suddenly you've come up with a way to actually turn it into a, a profitable operation. Well, that's yeah. entrepreneurship. I, I remember Doug Ramshaw, I think, you told me about Chester, and he, he, he was sort of very effusive and very, well, very warm, warm memories of, of him for well, sure. Chester Miller was 56 when I met him, and I was 23. Yeah. Uh, he would have been about uh, 88 when Doug Ramshaw met him. He's yeah, still going. Right. He's, he's, he's 96 years of age, and he's still going strong. But the fact is that, you know, when, when Chester Miller was, uh, was a 56-year-old a mining entrepreneur, that guy was hundred miles an hour. Exactly, and uh, basically, I, I, I just, I, I had to run to keep up with them. And well, let, you let, learn a lot from from an experience like that. You do, and it's exactly where I'm going now. So you know, you've you've kind of built this thing out. You've got a huge, was it 1,900 odd people right throughout the organization? But there's a team under you. You need to learn from you, and I'm sure are learning from you. What are the things that you point to in terms of right? Defining the type of company you want to be, the way that they should do business, 
and you know stop making don't make silly mistakes so what 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 when you're passing stuff down to the next generation what what are you telling them to focus on what's important well first of all i i would point out the fact that i learn as much from my team as they learn from me um we're not one of these stratified organizations where you know the decision is handed down from on high and it sort of filters through the through through the various levels there we're a very lateral kind of organization and decision making it's really there's a small group of us we we sit around our our board table and um and we hash it out and and generally um when when we're ready to move on something there's consensus around that table and we're fortunate to have we really have some of the smartest people in the industry working for us uh, I, I would just point out as a case in point uh, chris boswick who's our vice president of technical services so who's chris boswick well here's an example of um of, of what chris boswick pulled off earlier on his career he was in a similar role with barrett gold in the early 1990s, when Barrett Gold was looking at a little junior called Arequipa Resources, Arequipa had nine drill holes and 20 pits. That's it. And he he extrapolated from that very limited amount of data that could potentially be a five million ounce gold deposit. And on the strength of that call, Barrick invested like 1.5 billion dollars. In this is be the early, it'd be about 94, maybe 95, $1.5 billion to acquire Arakeeper Resources. It was a major win for investors. Turned out to be a big win for Barrick as well because it went on to produce much more uh, than 5 million ounces of gold. Um, in other words, how do you, how, how do you um, account for that kind of technical insight? You know, yeah, you're, you're, you're basically pre-AI. So, the, well, <laughs> so you know, real thinking going on. There's, yeah, it's well, this is it? it's it's coming down to geostatistics. It's right. coming down to a really good understanding of the geology of of that model, which it was really in its formative stages. Um, you know, there was a bunch of things that went into um, providing the the insight to confidently recommend the acquisition of that deposit. Well, yeah. Now, flash forward to 2017. And we're looking at Island Gold. Well, Island Gold, at the time we acquired it, it had roughly a million ounces of reserves, and it had another five or six hundred thousand ounces of resources. But it, it probably had, I'm going to say, five or six uh, thousand uh, kilometers of drilling done on it. There had been massive amounts of drilling historically done in this district. In other words, he wasn't trying to guess on the basis of nine drill holes. He was able to look back over a, a whole body of, of data. And this was not that appreciated by the market. And we, what we also did is we, did, we just didn't take Richmond Mines data and try to make a guess from there. We took all that data and we modeled that deposit ourselves. And I would argue that by the time we made the, made the decision to acquire that asset, we knew more about it than the people selling it to us. We had more insights into what would probably occur in terms of how that would develop than what was probably understood by the people that sold it to us. And that's where you have to get to. And not only did we come up with that, um, that interpretation, we did so in under two months. So 
the ability to get to the right answer and the ability to get there quickly, that was a big differentiator. Now, at the time, there were several major mining companies with deposits in Ontario that practically had to drive past this mine yeah. uh, to, to get to their own operations. You'd wonder why, why weren't they stopping and having a look? I mean, they employ entire teams to do just that. Wood for the trees. That's yeah. why you need smaller companies in this sector. Yeah. Because, you know, we will, we will be the ones to, to look at some of the smaller things and, and, and take a risk. And, um, well, look how it turned out for us. You know, we've created yeah. a $2 billion asset that even before we finished the, the development, we're generating tremendous profits off it. I mean, we we're, we're producing roughly, um, well, we produce between 130 and 150,000 ounces of gold a year and our costs have been around a thousand bucks an ounce. So it's been very profitable for us and we're using the cash flows that we're generating from that operation to actually pay for the expansion. Yeah. Let, let's come back to that growth, word growth. Okay. $7 billion coming. It gets harder to tell that story convincingly, right? So you've got an eye to, eye to the future and you said every five years you've had, a, you've had a different company that you're building out. So I'm intrigued about what the next five years looks like for you in the context of growth, the backdrop of growth, because we, we've got the producing assets. What sits under that? How do we backfill the, or, or fill in these, these ounces or replace these ounces now and into the future? What's so that the, look like? The, the biggest single capital project that we've ever undertaken is the expansion of gold. Yeah. At $750 million, we've never done anything that big. We're done. Now that takes us from 130,000 ounces where we are today. It'll take us to you know, 300,000 ounces of production at conservative low costs. So that's a huge growth step. Um, and it's, it's organic growth. It's a, it's a fully permitted project. It's one, you know, we're mining from it now. So we understand it really well from that point of view. It's, it's a very de-risked, uh, step that we're taking here. Um, you know, long before we, we even announced to the market that we were ready to, to do the phase three expansion, a part of that phase three expansion was the expansion of our tailings facility. Well, before we made the announcement, we completed the, the, the expansion of the tailings facility. You know, so we sort of do things like that in a very quiet way that, that de-risk the, um, the growth step. Right. Okay. And um, so, so we're quite confident on, on the basis of this expansion, by 2026, when it's done, we're going to be operating at over 600,000 ounces of gold a year. Behind that, we have a project called Lynn Lake. Now, Lynn Lake is an equally interesting story. We, we actually picked up Lynn Lake um, almost um, by accident because when we acquired Young Davidson, we, we took over a company called Richmond, or, or pardon me, um, we took over Orico Gold, and Orico Gold had a joint venture with this little company, uh, which had the Lynn Lake project. But it was a, it was a, the, the joint venture structure made no sense at all. So I went to the, the chairman of that company and I said, we should just probably acquire you. Because uh, they were trading at a $13 million market cap. And I was now required to spend $20 million for 60% of that project. Yeah. I said, well, why don't I just take you out for $20 million? Yeah. And that gives you a, yeah. yeah. And so that's essentially what we did. So we acquired that project for, I think it was $22 million at uh, a point in time when the gold price was under $1,100 an ounce. It was like January of 2016. So where is it now? 
consensus value on that project now is about $450 million. Not bad for a thing you acquired for $22 million. Seven years ago. We, yeah. finished, we finished the permitting on it now. We've expanded it from 1.6 million ounces. It's currently trading at around, uh, pardon me, it's uh, currently sitting at around 2.6 million ounces <laughs> in our mineral, mineral inventory. And based on some satellite deposits, we think we can get it well over 3 million ounces. Yeah. So, you know, we've, we've made that and we continue to make that an ever more valuable asset. And by the time we, we put it into production, we think we can have it in production by 2028. That'll take us to 800,000 ounces. So we already, you know, from an organic growth perspective, we already own enough in our pipeline to take us from this 500,000 ounce a year to a level to 800,000 ounces. Explain to people, I, mean, it's, it's, I, I know it's obvious, blindingly obvious, but it's worth explaining to people. If, if you've got um, mid-tiers or, or, or larger boys looking to buy ounces, if they're going to the market and say they're buying a Great Bear, 1.6, 1.8 billion, whatever, that, whatever it was, why does your organic growth, uh, why is your organic growth more advantageous? Is it purely on a cost basis or is there a time component to that as well? I mean, why not go out and use some of your money and just go buy some quick ounces somewhere else? Well, I, I've done that, you know, I mean, if you look at, if you look at the acquisition of, uh, of Orico or the acquisition of, of, um, Richmond mines, that was the whole purpose. You know, you were bringing in, they were producing mines with a lot of organic growth opportunity. Yeah. So we're, we're willing to do that when we see. When it makes sense. But yeah, at the time we did that, the, the gold price was trading at $1,100 an ounce. So not too many competitors, um, really low cost yeah. acquisitions. And, and, you know, when, when we were saying, we think we're at the bottom here and that's why we're acquiring all, all you could see is the gold price had dropped from $1,900 to $1,100. You couldn't see the other part of the curve, right? So now though, in 2023 with gold back at $1,900 again, you think, wow, yeah, now we've got a parabola here and you guys were acquiring at the very bottom. You know, how did we know it was the bottom then? Yeah. Does it, and I guess where I'm going, because lots of people want to get on the conversation about M&A broadly in the market. The market's been shaken up at the moment because a lot of, as we've talked about previously, uh, value destroyed, et cetera. So do the big boys usually, and it's a kind of cliche, when the markets are at, at these sorts of dizzy highs in terms of gold price, they come and buy stuff out there. Does it? Do you say, are you saying that the market conditions now should logically prevent big companies going in and making expensive acquisitions, and you should only buy at the bottom, or is there, is there no real kind of well, in some case, ideal time. In some ways, M and A is a is a relative game, right? So if I'm sitting at a multiple, if I'm trading at one point one times NAV, right, and I'm looking at a company that's trading at point three times NAV. I can make a very good case for acquiring it because uh, I've got a much stronger paper uh, to, yeah. to, to play with there. And to some extent, you'll see companies capitalizing on that. Um, other than that, um, other than the fact that sentiment for undeveloped projects is at a an all-time low. Yeah. So if you happen to have spent a lot of money developing a mineral deposit, you're probably not getting a good valuation on it in the market right now. So that does create opportunities for acquirers. Um, then you'll get companies that will just um, find, you know, good synergies as we did with Orico, for example, 
Um, they were a small producer. We were a small producer. Um, we put those two companies together and we created something more than either company was worth on its own. And, um, and had we not done that, uh, that deal, we probably never could have done the deal on, on Richmond mines, but, but now collectively, you know, the effort that we put into establishing a Canadian business, because remember we only had one producing mine in Mexico and no exposure in Canada at all before 2015. And by 2023, 90% of our, our net asset value is in Canada, right? So why did we do that? Well, we perceived Mexico as getting riskier as in terms of political risk. We looked at other places in the world and we saw the whole world seemed to be getting riskier. And we also looked at the value of Canadian assets and saw it didn't cost much more for a Canadian asset than it did for an asset anywhere else. The market just wasn't differentiating. So we thought they really should. And so from that point of view, the good opportunities were in Canada. And that's why we focused there. Right, Sean, I'm, I'm getting signals from the team behind the camera. We've talked far too long and I've enjoyed it far too much, but we better better wrap it up. And I'll just just let you finish off with, right, you obviously, last three years have been good to you, good to your shareholders. What have we got to look forward to in the next 12 months? Well, it's, um, it's a strategy that we don't pursue in terms of, you know, 12 month increments. It doesn't fit that neatly. But our sort of multi-year strategy is to sort of build out our portfolio by, you know, wisely investing our capital in order to expand our production and lower our costs. And every step we take in this regard, it's all a de-risking exercise. You know, by the time we're, say, by the time 28, 28 rolls around, we're going to have four producing mines generating 800,000 ounces of production at sub $1,000 all in sustaining costs. That's massive cash flow generation. If we're at a $2,000 gold price, we're going to generate tremendous amounts of cash. That hopefully is going to mean higher dividends for our shareholders. We've been paying a dividend since 2010, but um, it'll allow us to pay even more dividends and allow us to uh, look around the world to see if there's more op opportunities. John, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Cheers.